From Hong Kong, this is Mea Kupa, the Lessons Learned from Startups podcast. Based on the Postmortem Conference, where founders, investors, lawyers, and mentors share their stories about working on, with, or for startups. I'm Jeffrey Brewer, and today we talk to Ben Chien, Managing Director, Greater China of the Animind Group. He came to that position as the founder of Aqua Media that got acquired by Animind Group. He is also the co-founder of Sea Doctors, a doctor review and classified website and mobile app. Welcome, Ben. Thank you for having me, Jeffrey. So, Ben, uh, can you tell me, how did you end up uh, in startups? Well, I think it, it will have to go all the way back to my starting. Uh, or I was originally, I was born in Hong Kong uh, in the 70s, and I went to the States. Yeah, you know, d- during my teen times, so I had a cross learning between the two cultures. Uh, my dad is also an entrepreneur. He was in the real estate development and shipping business, so not exactly the attack that I was exposed to, but nevertheless taught me a lot in my earlier years about how to be an entrepreneur and what it takes to be one. So uh, all my life, I wanted to follow the footsteps as being an entrepreneur. But I started kind of late, uh, and nearly forty years old, when I started Equimedia. Why did you start Equimedia, and what did you do uh, before that? You were working as a salaryman, and like, what did you decide to you know, basically stop that and start Equimedia? So yes, I, I was working for someone uh, all the time before I was near forty years old. Uh, th- there's a lot of things that I learned that I believe uh, it took me a lot longer than a lot of other entrepreneurs to become comfortable in starting and managing my own company. Around 2013, that's when I started Equimedia. At that time, there was an opportunity coming from a fairly large platform that was looking for partners uh, in Hong Kong. So it took me a while to think about this, but even at that time, I wasn't fully comfortable Mainly because, not really because I wasn't prepared as a manager, but mainly because I wasn't that familiar with the business that was being asked or the partnership that was being that was uh, being looked at. So, uh, so it it took me a while to to get there, but I was ready. I, I knew I was ready, is uh, and I also know that I will never be fully ready in order to face these type of uh, challenges. So. So that 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 was something that there was a fire inside me that really uh, woke up, really, uh, and so I took the challenge, gathered the team, raised a little bit of money, and also leverage uh, saving. Uh, I guess when you're older, you also have more savings, so that really helped. So that's how I really got started. It's from catching that opportunity and ticket it on. Okay, so you raise a little bit of money, like like. Where where did you raise it? Like, if you did, you made a business plan, go to investors, or did you ask some family and friends? Or right, it is was not really a VC kind of thing. Uh, I raised my money from my parents, so that was uh, easier. But it wasn't that big of a sum uh, either. It was more for sort of a security. So at that time, because my kids, uh, I have two boys at that time. So there's quite a lot of expenses. So in order to get a business going, uh, I need to be I need to give full confidence 
to my family that uh, we can last a while. So in order to do that, I have to raise some money for my family. So that's uh, really where it came out from. Uh, but as for the business, uh, it was pretty self-sustained, profit-wise. So the, the profit is enough to drive the daily operation and let it grow at that time. So uh, we, we were an agency, not so much of a real VC-backed startup. Okay, so uh, what I get from it, and correct me if I'm wrong, is basically you had two runways. One runway was the business runway, and one runway was the family runway. How much runway for the family did you calculate based upon your previous spendings? I believe that was nine months minimum. They have to be minimum nine months. And that month, nine months have to be pretty comfortable, like no changes nine months. But if it were to cut back a little bit here and there, probably a little bit over a year. Yeah. But for business-wise, we can probably last quite a while at that time because we're not really backed by VC. We don't really have a growth target at that time, even though, of course, I have my own growth target in mind. Uh, if we were to project that out, uh, including the expansion, adding the, the people, probably uh, a year, approximately. So that also means that you had your significant other uh, on board. Uh, how was how was she in the like whole process of you yeah, becoming an entrepreneur, being yeah responsible for your own income? What was her mindset in that? So at that time, it was a pretty classic. A combination where I was starting a, a company and she was in a big corporation making decent money. So at that time, we're not that uh, afraid to risk certain things. But still, uh, when we do the math, we only have about one year of money left to run the family. And so so it was uh, th th there was a strict target, So which is a promise that I made, uh, which is pretty much as important as the promise you made to VCs. Probably even more so because y you can stop working with the VC. <laughs> the wife is a little bit different. So so that, that was actually a lot of pressure on, on my side. And it, I guess the main difference is you don't see your, your, your investors every day, but you do see your family every day, every night. And that's so, uh, you also talk about it every day. So it's almost like having a quarterly or monthly review on a nightly basis. So that definitely adds on to the pressure. So definitely, if someone is not comfortable talking to their family about these on a regular basis, uh, probably this is something to be well aware of before going in. How did you do that? Like you just sat down with your wife and then at that point made a spreadsheet and like saying like, okay, these are going to be the the, the expenses for the next year, et cetera, et cetera. And maybe at that point also, yeah, basically giving a, every family member a budget or look, how, how, how did you get by uh, making that? Yeah, literally. It's almost like presenting a business plan, a financial P&L forecast to an investor. It's very similar. Um, and th uh, it's e even more personal uh, because then you have to think about cutting all the expenses for your own um, interest, your own expense, all that stuff. That automatically goes out the door for at least a year. And then the, the parts that gets really sensitive is whether you can cut the family budget in a certain way, whether family is willing to sacrifice for this. I mean, the kids have no say, of course, they're so young, but um, the wife. So it's a trade-off, whether you know cutting back some of the, the luxury at the meantime is worth it for the long term. Okay. 
Can you tell a little bit what kind of uh, experience that you had in the business before you started Aquamedia and, and what Aquamedia actually did? Yeah, so Aquamedia is a publisher trading desk. Uh, uh, and the main service that we provide is on ad monetization for websites and for app developers. So in other words, we generate ad revenue for websites and, and apps. That's our main thing. We provide this as a service and our revenue come from our service fees. So with that in mind, uh, you, you can kind of imagine that uh, who normally would have done something like that in the past? It sounds so niche. It just sounds very specific to a very small you know, groups of people. It is, uh, and it's very B2B at that point. <clears throat> the main experience I had in the uh, before that was working in another local agency, reselling for Yahoo Search Marketing. Uh, so that, that was a great experience. At that time, I was head of marketing. I helped out uh, a team of approximately 70 salespeople to sell uh, Yahoo stuff uh, on, on, uh, on behalf of Yahoo. And so we're a reseller. So that, that's the reseller knowledge that I learned that was crucial for growing Equimedia. Okay. And so at that point, you started Aquamedia. How did you start? From your uh, bedroom or you uh, uh, hired an office or like how and you started hiring people or how did that, that first week, how did that start? As the first week I started off on my dinner table and the same dinner table in the same chair that I was sitting last night. And that was about seven years ago. So yes, the, the whole idea, the whole every all, all the conversation all started by the same uh, a area, and uh, so I was working from home for about a month before I moved over to Cocoon, uh, which uh, is a co-working space at that time, probably uh, one of the few. And so that, that that's that's how we started physically at that time. Did you already like started out right off the bat hiring staff or like it was just first you and then uh, when some revenue were coming in, you started hiring or how, how did that work? So I was lucky enough at that time that I, I met someone from a previous job that immediately just came to mind. So I called them up, see if they're interested. And we came up with a way to work together with the least amount of uh, sort of salary uh, we came up with a, a partnership ownership and so uh, typical things for your first uh, partner co-founder hire whatever you call that so ownership is very important we can talk about that later so that so we, we started off um, and every single person even in the seven years of operation were people that I used to work with in the past for at least two years so I know all of them well uh, in, in their exact capacity so there's almost no interview needed I literally go out there and beg for them to wor work with me uh, on, on these cases yeah so uh, at the beginning looking for people was uh, yeah it was a little bit difficult because I kind of restricted myself to only work with people that I've worked with before so it wasn't really all that many uh, but the, the, the easy part is I never really have to hire or to post the ad and do a lot of interviews, that kind of stuff. So that, that power is easy. Okay. And then the first week, how did you get 
your first contact, your first client, the first revenue in? Like, how was the first month basically? Were you able, as of the first month, already make payroll, or did you have to like dig into your uh, own investment, your own savings first to make that work? Yes, it took us approximately, I think, seven to eight months to become sort of profitable. Profitable meaning that first, I don't pay myself a salary. And our only expense is the co-working space and the salary that I have to give to our first uh, staff or, or partner or, um, yes, so the, the first person that takes a salary. So it took us about eight months to get there. Uh, initially, the first client or first five clients are all companies that I had worked with in the past um, in different capacity. Um, so... In the past, I worked with advertisers, but in Equimedia, we work with publishers. So we're lucky enough that this space, uh, it's pretty overlapped. A lot of advertisers are also publishers, so it's pretty easy for me to just dig through the old contacts and find the same people and without sort of affecting any of the previous relationships that I have with other companies. And then you're eight months in, you're getting profitable. What's next? Big cars, nice houses, Rolex, what? Right. I, I do like all of the above, but no. Um, so you, pretty much I only bought my first watch after I sold the company. So, uh, And uh, house, we, we were on a mortgage uh, at that time. No difference at that. Uh, and car, no, I, I bought a, um, yeah, a, a pretty cheap Japanese car, in 2007, I'm still driving the same car, even today. So, <laughs> uh, yes, I, I love cars, but I also love vintage cars. So that happens to be a vintage now. <laughs> so anyway, so, so let's get back to that. Um, once we start becoming profitable, it's time to grow as quick as possible. And it, it was through some opportunity uh, that we finally uh, found, uh, actually uh, at the beginning, when we started this company, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the, the platform that was looking for partnership is Google. So uh, we started becoming a Google partner. And uh, over the years, uh, our, the partnership grew very well. Um, the, the trust is there, the collaboration, just a lot of synergy between what Google is building and what we can help them to grow the Hong Kong and Taiwan market faster. So that accelerated very quickly, and we found ways to do these, uh, go to market strategy and things. And we're accelerating approximately 70% every quarter uh, for approximately two years. So that really nails it in terms of growing and penetrating the Hong Kong market first. And uh, we, we pretty much grew the brand uh, within that two years into the go-to place for anyone that want to monetize their uh, online digital inventory. We talked a little bit already earlier about staff. What was the most challenging part for you to hire capable staff? Well, I, I believe hiring that part isn't too difficult because um, I only hire people that I've worked with for at least two years. Uh, so I already know that I need them. Uh, it's where I can convince them to work hard and to be passionate and to be committed. So the hardest part is to make them more committed than they started and to continue that for a long period of time so we started uh so it, it was right at the beginning i wasn't really thinking too much about stock options but uh, this conversation started with our first uh, staff 
in about the first year time, and I started thinking about this uh, vigorously. And uh, so I did quite a lot of research and finally committed to a plan that I should give everyone that came to the company some stock options uh, during appropriate time in order to increase the commitment and to, to retain them. And this is a typical advantage of stock options. And I need to do it a way so it's not that complex because um, this is not Silicon Valley. This is not Yahoo I was working before. So things have to be easier to understand, have to be more powerful. And so in, in general, I kind of changed the stock option plan a little bit from what I've learned from previous companies and applied to my own company, and that worked out really well. Okay. You're growing, uh, you're hiring staff, and then all, all of a sudden, yeah, you have a profitable business, uh, a, as I maybe call it, a lifestyle business. And then what's what's next? Right. It, it was definitely a lifestyle business. We didn't have any VC-backed funding. Uh, we were growing fast at our own rate and wish. And around this third year time, we start seeing a significant drop uh, in growth rate. I mean, comparing to sort of 70% per quarter, uh, it, it's still a pretty fast clip, but it was obviously slower. And it was... Uh, it, it, the the sort of deceleration kind of continued. So that kind of make us uh, think again about whether we were just purely lucky for the last two years or were we really onto something but not anymore or things have changed around us and how can we you know, change to accommodate for, the, for such. So it, it took us a long time. Uh, we try to not pivot per se, but we try to add more uh, services to everything we were providing at that time, but it didn't really work out too well, and we tried it for about a year. So between the third and fourth year, that was the most difficult time. We're still profitable, um, and we're still growing, but it's not very... Uh, the whole atmosphere was different, maybe because people are so used to that fast-paced growth, and once we slow down, everyone kind of just slack a little bit. And so that was definitely troubling. And... Of course, then maybe you get a little bit nervous. Did you have like advisors that helped you yeah, getting to to solutions or did you have like consultant hiring or like what did you do? Yes, I did went out there and look for advisors, uh, people that have done these before, even somewhat different stuff, but mainly in the advertising technology space. There's quite a lot of good advices, but most of these things we have tried already in some form, we believe at that time. And some new things we also tried, but not exactly uh, the way that we wanted to work. But at the end, I believe the best advisors that we found that actually fixed things uh, were actually the teammates. Uh, I guess it, it's from from sort of not the desperation, but from the the commitment. Uh, when When your team see how committed um, the, the leader want to change things. Everyone wants to become part of that as well. So this influenced everyone, and everyone were going out there and also looking for advices uh, in every single thing they do. Every time you see a client, they would try to add some advice, and these things really accumulate and adds up. And sooner or later, we're getting advices from the team left and right, and that really helped to infuse a lot more enthusiasm and new ideas into the business that eventually sort of turn things around. 
So basically what they were doing very well, like customer discovery, uh, see what the pain points were for the existing clients. Did you did you train them on that or did they come that by themselves or how did that evolve? I, I wouldn't say I trained them, but I definitely showed them by my own action. Uh, so there's, uh, yeah, there's quite a lot of discovery, like you said. Um, I guess in, in the past when they meet with clients, they just want to sell, pitch, and get the revenue ASAP and try to retain that revenue, but wasn't really thinking very deep into what does that help ourselves in the long term, not just the short term revenue, but uh, if we see a recurring challenge from a lot of our clients, then maybe we can build something different or can charge differently or can work differently in order to solve these kind of bigger problems. And we could probably scale these globally as well. So these are sort of the areas that from my own action kind of influenced everybody else and everyone's pretty much doing the same. And when eight people are doing the same thing, then it's a lot more powerful than just one person. And then AnyMind came along. How, how did that happen? Somebody just called you out of the blue, uh, like saying like, hey, we want to buy you or like what was the process there? Yes, that, that was the fifth year, uh, the end of the fifth year of the operation. And we were at a annual Google event where a lot of Google partners will congregate uh, and we're having breakfast. So I was sitting uh, way in front because I was a little bit late. And then even later was AnyMind's founder that, that came in even after me. And so we have nowhere to sit, but just right next to me. And that's where it all started. We, we just start having a breakfast conversation. And uh, yeah, one thing need to another, another. but I guess the, the main thing is um, we're both kind of prepared going into these meetings to take opportunities um, uh, like straight up. And you have to be pretty prepared physically, financially, psychologically, just um, everything in order to captivate these kind of opportunities. I fully believe that uh, just from the first eyesight, well, when we just kind of look at each other, uh, I immediately I remembered, oh, I saw this guy's uh, in a online magazine somewhere. Oh, I kind of remember oh, he, he started something and it raised some money, but I can't exactly remember which company or what it does. Um, and I believe he, he saw something uh, similar, maybe from some uh, industrial um, EDMs or something in, in the past that we have sent out that have my face in it. So we kind of both recognize each other, uh, but neither of us can remember exactly what the other person does. Uh, but immediately once we start talk, uh, talking, then everyone remembers because we have all done our research before these events. So uh, that, that's how, I guess, it, it started. It's not as just coincidental. I believe it's kind of planned out. Okay. Were you mentally, physically, like, ready to be acquired, like, and technically to be, uh, ready to be acquired, or, like, how did that go? Mentally, yes, uh, because I've actually promised the entire team, even in our first year, that we're probably going to sell the company within five years. I've specifically mentioned this, and someone actually brought this back up once we finished m and so that th this was something that uh, mentally I've, I was definitely prepared. But physically, meaning financially uh, or operational-wise, no. <laughs> We're not even close to being prepared. We did not have an accountant, a lawyer, or anyone along that line for any kind of DD. Uh, so that was uh, 
as you can imagine, a big challenge when we really comes to the DD. So uh, no, not financially or operational challenge, but mentally, yes. So how long did it take from that breakfast dinner with the uh, at that event until like you made a decision? Okay, we we are going to do this. Let let's push this through. And how long did it take from that decision? Let's do this and the actual uh, rounding of of the yeah uh, acquisition. It took about uh, a month for both sides to sort of verbally express very high interest of the M&A, but it actually took us nine months to close the deal. Uh, and it, I guess, mainly attribute to uh, we were not as ready uh, operational-wise uh, as we should be. Normally, these things should take maybe three months or something for a company our size and uh, in our, in our uh, industry. But we took a lot longer, so this is definitely advice for anyone that even mentally is ready to sell, should definitely get the stuff together uh, because you never know what's going to happen within a DD. If you're too slow, things could change. Valuation could change. A lot of things could change. Uh, that could make things very complex and lead to uncertainty, and that is not good at all for any M&A. So at that point, you made a decision. You're going to do this. Did that have any, like in that nose, like nine months, right, you said? Did it have a significant influence on the operations and the profitability of the company while like working on this uh, acquisition? While it normally you would have maybe focused on acquiring new customers or or serving your existing customers better, or how did you see any like yeah, influence there? Uh, yes, it took probably ninety percent of my time during that nine months to take care of the due diligence for M and A. Uh, before everybody else, probably take them 10 or even less percent of their time, mainly because I was mainly doing all of the job uh, in that part. Um, in, in normal practice, I guess it wouldn't happen this way, but the, the problem kind of compounded. Uh, not only do we not have any accountant, uh, legal, and uh, operational staff that way, uh, all the information are mainly either in my own like Google Drive or C Drive. So a lot of these things uh, could have been a lot easier, but were made very difficult in such a time squeeze. Uh, and when more and more questions start servicing in, in the DD, for anyone who, who have done this before, uh, you answer one question and then nine more came in based on that single answer. Um, so yeah, so th this uh, definitely impacted my own time, but not so much on everybody else's time. And since the company was pretty mature operational-wise at that point, it didn't really affect the entire company's ability to grow. So it didn't really affect the company's growth, but it did impact the strategic uh, thinking time that I have. That normally I just put in, a, uh, put in time to do research on a daily basis to find new areas to grow. I didn't really have much time doing that. And uh, I guess the most importantly is the sort of the morale change. Uh, it's, uh, I, uh, morale change sounds like a negative thing. I mean, it's not really a negative thing. It's just quite a lot of uncertainty because everyone know that I'm working on DD or about to sell a company. Then nobody exactly know what the terms uh, in, in, in the term sheet and everything, what's going to happen to them. Are we going to change people or keep the people or uh, like change the salary or change the title, change anything? So that was a part that in hindsight, I should have done a lot more to care more about the, the worries and just uh, doubt and everything and do a lot more communication. So that's big advice for anyone who's going through this. 
And then in a pre-talk that we had, one of the uh, challenging things you also said was that your employees had stock in your company, right? Correct. How how did that work out with an acquisition? You're not the only uh, shareholder at that point. So like, what was their reaction? Were, were there people that didn't want to sell or like, how, how did that work? Right. So everyone in a company has stock options. So there's no exception. So when they sell, all the stock options have been fully vested. So that means everyone is the stockholder of the company. So when we sell, uh, there's definitely a lot of questions that, that come in. Uh, what if anyone want to sell the shares beforehand? Or can we have uh, any negotiation? Can we have more stocks before we sell? Or any of the things. These are valid questions, all valid questions. Um, and at, at that point, it, it was a squeeze between the buyer and uh, the, the other stock uh, owners or the partners of the company. So uh, once the DD started, most of the things cannot be changed from the initial stage or the stage when we started doing the DD, and that, that is pretty much given. And so it, it, it was quite tough to go through that uh, stage. So a lot of conversation happened at that time to ease everyone's worry. Um, since we cannot change much of the stock structure at that point, so we have to find other ways to accommodate for people's needs. At the beginning, I wasn't very sensitive to this, but thank God I, I learned very, very quickly from a few very sensitive conversations and uh, I've made some changes internally uh, among us to make this happen uh, more fluidly so people would not leave uh, right after the M&A and they would stay and work just as hard, if not harder. And uh, so th this is the only thing, I mean, th th this is very, very important for me right in the middle to make sure that it works out well for both the team and the soon-to-be buyers. Okay. You expressed a point indeed, like people leaving maybe directly afterwards or not. That also includes yourself. You obviously made a decision or at least maybe you, you didn't have that choice, but to stay on and become the managing director of Asia for uh, for AnyMind. How were you able to get this with your staff and like what kind of terms and conditions did you negotiate with your staff to do this and what kind of terms and conditions if you're free to talk about it uh, for yourself because quite often especially in, in the startup community when people sell their company m most of them want out at that point also so can you tell a little bit more about that sure it's um it's a lot, lot of communication one-to-one -one, uh, on a very personal level. I have to really understand everyone's family situations, what they're looking for. Uh, are they kids like going to study abroad or do they have any parents getting old? I mean, I, I really have to understand a lot of these things, almost like a full due diligence to every single partner before we do this. So once I fully understand all these, and then uh, because the way that you talk about these things, uh, everyone will open up more to you and then this really really helps so there's no surprise later on and th this this type of com uh, communication help to understand uh, what type of things we need to uh, keep or to change so one recurring theme is no one really want any kind of change after an M&A people most people don't like changes uh, especially people in a pretty steady job, and in that in in that time we we have been pretty steady for five years, so nobody wanted changes. 
uh, and obviously, if uh, the the compensation in in some way in structure or anything can be improved in any form or even a better title, uh, that will also help wherever is possible. So that's something also help to negotiate. Um, so there's a lot of negotiation left and right, and even the act of negotiating would already show the sort of the uh, that that you care, and that actually helped a long way. It's not so much about the result of negotiation. Um, so people see that you, uh, they can trust you. They can, they can count on you uh, at this time, and then they will trust you for a long time after M and A. So if they can't even trust you during that M and A, they will probably just leave, and they they cannot imagine working for you in a completely different environment for another two or five years. So that part, so uh, it, it was tough. But uh, if you put in a time to understand everyone's needs, if you you know, make opportunity for everyone to talk. You, you can learn a lot, and uh, yeah, in, in most uh, DD cases or, or M and A cases, it's not as straight cut. A lot of things can be negotiated if you can voice out early enough, and if you really make the other side understand why you are requesting for something, and that it will benefit both parties down the road uh, in a long term basis then a lot of negotiation would probably work out. So I learned it the hard way because I didn't really have sort of the guts to, to negotiate too early because we're still in the DD process. So that's probably not a good time to ask for too many things because I was really driving for uh, a, a big exit at that time. So uh, so that that's something that every owner, uh, when they're selling, would have to face. And then at that point, the whole sales process is going on. Like, did you have like advisors for that? Or like, did you have people helping you with, with, with the acquisition? Because I guess like the first time you're, you were doing this, so experience there could come in handy. So how did you get advice? Where, where did you find it? And, and what, what type of advice was that? So initially I was looking for advisor to help with the exit in order to sort of maximize uh, the Equimedia's benefit on behalf of us. Uh, so that uh, I wasn't really sure there's anyone that specialized in such. They were, but uh, after I talked to a few, I don't really think I can trust a lot of them. Um, and also I talked to other people who have exited. Uh, they also have tried such, but none of them have actually actually act on that route. So, uh, so, uh, but uh, I did find that a great legal advisor uh, helps tremendously in not just giving you the confidence to go through the M&A and all the documents you have to go through and all the interviews and all the groups of professionals that you have to go through from the buyer, but also give you, uh, you, you also learn a lot more about what sort of the the bottom line, the worst case scenario and all that stuff. And that is extremely important. I mean, in, in most cases, the best case scenario isn't really that far from what you can imagine. There's only so much money or things people can give you. But on the flip side, the worst case scenario can be very bad if you mess up any of the things or you overlook any of the terms and things like that. You can potentially lose your entire startup. You can lose money like net loss uh, or it can be very, very different from whatever you expect to sell at and all that stuff. So legal advisor was probably the best part of the advisors that I got. So, but legal is one side. Uh, 
sorry for all the lawyers out there, but like normally my experience is that not most of the lawyers are very well uh, educated in, in finance or even in businesses in that sense. How did you go along with, for instance, yeah, like valuing your company? Like, cause I can imagine that of course a, a legal uh, advisor could give you good legal advice in, in, in contracts, but probably not the best advice in how to value your company. Even if it's just like, one of my advisors quite often say there are only three rules of money. More is always better than less. Now is always better than later. And in my pocket is always better than in yours. So I've never heard a lawyer say that. So like in the business sense, where did you get your advice on valuation, business, etc.? Wow, I, I don't even know how to start. I mean, the, the first day when I thought about valuation uh, during that breakfast time or during that dinner time, uh, we already start talking uh, not on valuation, but definitely the in testing each other for the intention. That was the time that I really start think deep about the valuation. So I almost never really thought about it, uh, even though I call myself mentally kind of prepared, but I haven't even set my valuation straight. Like if I have to say something, I don't know what to say. But if I were to think, I'd probably have a range. Um, at that time, I was looking at all the other cases that have sold around a uh, similar time in EdTech or in similar industries to get an idea of the multiple per se. And But different companies are, are a different sort of a, a profit margin level growth rate. And those are the things you can never really uh, know uh, in order to validate your valuation. So then you start to triangulate from many areas because bottom up doesn't really make sense. That what about top down? What about just, uh, is there a magic number that you feel that you by yourself without an MA would never achieve uh, in your lifetime or in the time that you want to continue to work? For me, it was easier to start from that route because I'm older. Um, I don't think I can work forever um, at this pace, at this stress level. Uh, and if I have to grow, I have to grow outside of the greater China region. A am I really ready to do that? Am I suited? Is my family supportive and all that stuff? I kind of know the answer to all, all, all that. So I kind of, uh, li if I were to put a limitation on that, what's the valuation of the company or what's the sort of revenue growth or the profit growth of the company in the next five years if those are the limitations. So I kind of did that math on just a backup envelope and then I put in an industry average multiple and that's kind of how I came up with my valuation. So basically tie to your own limitations and use some industry average multiple that that should be the best way at that time. So that's how I that mind, um, but of course, uh, that then uh, in, in in some cases, when you look at it in different ways, it could be drastically different. It could be one zero different. Uh, but um, uh, I guess at the end of the day, it's um, really about how much money will you, will you and all your partners be sort of satisfied in a way, and that's much easier to to come about. So it's not much math. It's really just a feeling. So and then you sold it. Now you're basically salary man again how does that feel it definitely feels good uh, not because of just a salary man uh, that per se i mean to me salary man or being your own boss it's um not too much different in terms of the enthusiasm when you go to work it feels exactly the same it's what you do is your reputation on the line and is uh 
because I have nothing else better to do. <laughs> uh, so I, I feel the exact same way. Just both are just as res respect uh, respectable as the other. And, but I guess n now is, uh, it, it took a while to get uh, used to, but not as long as I imagined. I would imagine uh, it will be very difficult for me to get back to just uh, having one boss. But it's actually a lot easier, maybe because the startup time for me only lasted five years, and I worked for about twenty some years before that, so I'm pretty used to you know having one one boss, and that feeling comes back pretty naturally. And then th the best thing that really c comes to this is the ability to learn something completely new that I would never be able to learn it myself. Uh, at least I wouldn't have the intention to learn it. Uh, and that's social media, influencer marketing, and other platforms the company is actually building right now. And also the ability to reach so many other countries. So we're currently in 13 countries. And I was in, so when in Equimedia time, we we're only working five countries. So it was significantly more, a lot more diversified, culture wise, language wise, every way possible. So in between the culture diversity and also the product or the solution diversity or the addressable market uh, in that sense is just so much more than what we had before. And that's what makes this interesting to me. Thank you for that. What is an often given advice that you hear going around that you actually don't agree with? Okay. The main, the biggest one would be, uh, I was uh, pretty often being criticized as changing my mind too often, hopping from idea to idea, and mainly that those th those feedback come from my teammates, uh, not so much from clients that I got. But uh, it's uh, it's something that sometimes bothers me to think, okay, am I really is it really bad? Uh, but on in the back of my head, I know why I'm doing this. I'm doing this mainly in a way of it's almost like agile testing in a way that I like to not think things through too much uh, but quickly take uh, just a small step try it out and if it doesn't work why not and just improve on it and just keep improving on it and so if I keep doing that I have to have someone to help me to do that so I uh, and that will turn into just um, sort of uh, uh, what, what do you call it I, I just ask my team to help me to execute on some of these things so in a way of execution uh, from anyone that does not really think the same way or understand the full thinking uh, or the the train of thoughts, it, it will sound like I'm just changing my mind all the time. And sometimes it's even 180 degree around uh, from certain perspective. But maybe because I realized something did not work, so I have to change it around or I have to do it some other different way, but then I explain too well. So that is something uh, I believe is kind of my style. Um, and that, 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 that it's... It's good for industries that are relatively new, that does not really have a Bible to follow. And if uh, the, the founder or all the team members are able to cope with this, that will also make perfect sense as well. Right. And what was the most valuable advice that yeah, is ever given to you or like life lessons that somebody taught you? Yeah, I think uh, have the contrarian thinking. Um, so when I started Equa in 2013, 
uh, before I started, I actually went out there and talked to three large agencies whether they want to do this because uh, Google, Google, um, a Google friend asked me uh, if anyone in Hong Kong wanted to do that. I looked around, uh, everyone thought I was crazy and why would I even bring this up to them uh, because I, I was uh, in the same shoes uh, in the past. And so they, they thought I was crazy. They, they just thought I have bad vision and, and things. So I didn't really take it offensively, uh, but I actually took it as, okay, maybe nobody believe in it, there will be zero competition. So if this somehow, some way worked out, then I'll be God. <laughs> so, th so this is uh, sort of the, the thinking that reinforced my thinking of you got to think differently from other people. Uh, but of course, not just for the sake of that, but to, to think about ways uh, why people don't think it will work uh, and take sort of a lesson from that and kind of pivot it in, in certain ways that it will work, uh, focus in small areas, prove it, and then work things out. And uh, you do this enough, and we, and we think about these sort of uh, contrarian thinking ideas often enough, you will find some areas uh, that you can actually disrupt things. Okay. Um What's something that's not a secret, but most people don't know about you? Like you already talked about vintage cars. We could probably at that point fill an whole episode on that because I have my opinions there too. Uh, for me, that would be the BMW E38 750i from 2001 all the way. <laughs> but um, what's something that p most people don't know about you? I believe most people or, or not m but many uh, people that i've talked to thought uh, i was from beijing specifically uh, i was originally from hong kong um, i've never spent any real time or even working in beijing but i understand why they think that because my parents have been working in beijing since the 80s uh, so i traveled between beijing and hong kong very frequently on uh, sometimes uh, a couple times a quarter so, and when people uh, call me as I was Beijing, so everyone thought that was my home. It, and I even call that my home because I guess in, in Chinese, when you call home, it's not really where you were born, it's really where your parents are born uh, or your parents' parents are born or sort of originated city or village. And so I kind of uh, just people thought that. I, I guess uh, I'm, I don't, I'm fine with that, of course, um, because my parents live there and I, I love that place. Even though I can't really visit it now, uh, not not as often. Um, but I guess the, the main lesson learned is, I guess it, it's what you consistently do that sets your brand. Not so much of what you tell people or what happened in a snapshot of time, but it's what you keep doing over and over and over that really sets as what people sees you. So that's a pretty pretty interesting realization. And uh, if there's one thing that you want people to take away from this talk, what is it? Since we're talking about startups here, so I, 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 I think after all the M&A and the way that I started the company and it ended fairly well, I would think that, um, I mean, even though I'm really into the, the VC uh, ecosystem, I love how it works. I'm very intrigued by it. I still think that there are quite a lot of startups uh, that if they have other ways to capitalize, to raise money, uh, the VC route might not be the, the best route uh, if they think hard. So uh, don't just automatically assume that you, you need to raise from angel to C to series A, B, and all that stuff. There are many other ways in between 
finding a bank to get a loan all the way to a VC. The different type of VC as well, there's um, there's the type that don't really require that high of a growth rate. Uh, but of course, they, they would require something else. But the, the whole combination of sort of the, the, the ways to work with different people that provide the capital to you, uh, every founder should explore more, should research more, to really research in their own soul in a way to really find what do they really look for? What's their time horizon? What can they tolerate and what can they not tolerate and all that stuff and really truly understand from their peer or people that have go through these kind of growth states to fully understand what is required mentally, physically, financially, all that stuff. So there are many, many ways to do things. And being a startup, everyone should know that. So I, I, I guess one advice would be uh, when when you raise or when you even think about whether you need to raise money, think very deep and put more time into this. And th- there's always a way out. So if you kind of mess it up, don't, don't think that, oh, I messed it up first, I have to go through the second and all that. There's always a way out. So don't, don't go deeper and deeper into a space uh, which is not suitable. So here I'm not saying that VC is not good. Definitely not because I, I myself eventually also want to be one. But uh, I might think a little bit differently from the traditional VC that's in the Valley and and so forth. And I also see there's a lot of new breed that, that's coming out recently uh, in, in these couple of years. And uh, so th- those are a, sort of a direction that I think will... Um, be very attractive for different groups of founders. Okay, thank you very much. I want to thank you for your valuable insights and sharing of your lessons learned in startups. Thank you very much, Jeffrey. Uh, I also want to thank Kowloon E-Stadium for supplying this recording studio while we're here in this COVID-19 situation here in Hong Kong. might hear some background noise, but we're in a a padded studio, so they were able to to sponsor this room for us. So uh, thank you very much, Kowloon E-Stadium in the the Emacs Mall. For the listeners, although the rating system of the podcast is hideous, uh, if you like the this Maya Culpa series, you can rate this podcast with the five stars and motivation for the makers. Uh, this is Jeffrey Brewer. Normally I would say go out and build something meaningful, but don't go out yet and just build something meaningful. Thank you very much. <laughs>